Hello, and welcome back to Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history without a spot of travel. I'm your host, Larissa, and in this episode, we'll be looking at what a defeat, a religious festival, and a military celebration all have in common. But first, uh, I may swear in this episode, and if you're listening on podcast Addict or Apple Podcasts, please leave a review or just rate it. You can also find us on a number of streaming sites, including but not limited to Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and of course, the website wanderingtheedge.net, where you can find out any um, after the previous episodes and sources. Now, because it's uh, allergy season, I am stuffed up. So sorry about that. And if you also don't know by now, Russia has evaded Ukraine, and so travel uh, options are limited, to say the least. And so no tourist information until those fuckers are kicked out of Ukraine and dissolved of their statehood. But just because you can't make it to Ukraine, uh, you can actually go to the Louvre in Paris, which is exhibiting five Ukrainian icons from the Bogdan and Varvara Hanenko Museum until November 2023. Now, these icons were secretly evacuated from Kiev after a missile strike at the Tarashevchenko Park that's right across the street from the Hanenko uh, Museum in October 2022. The Louvre exhibit is called The Origins of the Sacred Image, and is it, it is in the Denon uh, Wing, Room 173. And I would have loved to tell you all about the Hanenko Museum, because it's honestly one of my favorites in Kiev and even in Ukraine, since it was A, centrally located, uh, B, in a beautiful old house, and C, has some actually really, really impressive art exhibits in it. But I can't. Now can I? Stupid Russia. But now, let's talk about a feast day that began with a defeat in Constantinople which then somehow created a religious festival, then into a day dedicated to the Ukrainian soldier. This episode will focus on Sviatopokrove, the intercession of the Theotokos. And because I have no tourist information for you, this episode will probably be a bit shorter than normal. So, the intercession of the Theotokos is a celebration of the Mother of God and celebrates the protection of the faithful through the interception of the Virgin Mary, i.e. the Theotokos, which is a Greek. The feast day itself is celebrated throughout Orthodox Christianity, but it's become something of a big thing for Ukrainians, mainly because of its long history of military associations in Ukraine itself. And how did it all start? Well, it's a bit complicated, since we don't actually know for sure, but it was in medieval times. Now, one version of the origins of this feast day, namely through Nestor the Chronicler, and don't worry, I'm not going to quote him, in his chronicles, said it happened in June 860, when Askod marched on Constantinople. It apparently took the Greeks by surprise, as it was, quote, like a thunderbolt from heaven, end quote. But they then quickly retreated, which the patriarch in Constantinople, uh, Photius, 
interrupt interpreted as a sign of the intercession of the mother of god when the rus army came back and surrounded the city the faithful took out the robes of the virgin mary which were relics stored at the church of saint mary of blacarnia walked around the walls of the city with them and the mother of god herself came down in a vision covering the city with her protection or omophorion in greek after retreating and returning home askold and his army all converted and constantinople was saved now the other day that is usually associated with this miracle is 10 uh, is sorry is 9:10 when ehod attacked constantinople supposedly during another siege that threatened the capital of the byzantine empire which was ruled by emperor leo the wise the residents again prayed for a miracle this too happened at the same church the blachernia church where her robe her veil and part of her belt were kept as relics it was on october the first at four in the morning that a certain saint andrew the blessed fool for christ then witnessed a miracle now andrew was a slav by birth who became a slave to some guy and then decided to become a fool for christ basically he gave up his earthly possessions to obtain humility and patience Anyway, it was he who witnessed and testified that as people were praying in the church, the mother of God descended into the church, accompanied by saints and angels. She then bowed her knees and began to pray for everyone, and when she was finished, her veil spread over the city to protect it. Thus, again, the Greek word, homophoros. Anyway, the attacking army retreated, and this was a sign from God that the city was under the protection of God and his mother which didn't really help them that much when the city was then sacked and fell to the Ottomans in 1453, but, you know, whatever. And while I'm sure God was looking out for the capital of his kingdom on earth, it can also be said that it might have been as simple as nature and diplomacy that led the invading armies to retreat. In 860, for example, there's information that there was a storm that blew in and that led to Askel's early departure. Well, in 910, it probably ended with the emperor just presenting generous gifts to the invaders, and they then went home, which happened a lot in those days, actually. Anyway, the miracle itself was canonized by the patriarch in Constantinople as the holiday of praise to the mother of God who, quote, helped the Byzantines drown the Scythians in the Bosphorus, end quote. And with this, it also spread to the other regions of Orthodox Christ uh, Christendom namely cave in the Rus, where those who converted went uh, went back to it was used by the priest to show the mercy that the mother of god could bring only if those pagans were baptized and saw the truth faith and i'm sure it worked for some but not for the nobility until that is Voldemort the great and his grandmother but she didn't really have anything to do with this episode so the feast itself was officially introduced in the 10th century, with the adoption of Christianity in Rus by Voldemort the Great in 988. Now, there's a theory out there that the spread of the veneration of the Mother of God was influenced by a Christian cult that centered around the Blaherna church in Herson, which is also linked to Voldemort's baptism. How important was the image of the Mother of God to Voldemort? Well, he dedicated the first stone church in his empire to her, the, uh, the Dormation of the Virgin, or, as it is now commonly known, the Church of the Tits, because Voldemir dedicated a tenth of his income to finance the construction of it. 
It was subsequently destroyed in 1240 by the Mongol armies of Batu Khan. There's also a legend out there that says that the mo- that Mother Mary herself had a thing to do with this. She apparently called upon four architects and ordered them to cave, to build a cathedral in her name. She also apparently de- uh, directed the icon painters to paint um, the church and decorate the altar with muse- mosaics. Now, how much of this is true, I don't know, but I'm sure Voldemid offered a pretty damn good pay for those architects and painters. Additionally, in any official list of icons brought over from Chris, uh, from Constantinople by Anna, which was Voldemort's wife, it includes many variations of icons dedicated to the Virgin Mary, which were subsequently bequeathed to the Church of the Tiths. One of them is in the Blaherna style, which is what we now think of when we think of the icon associated with Sviatopokrovi. The most unique aspect of this particular icon is that Mother Mary isn't holding baby Jesus, but rather a shroud or veil in her hands or her actual cloak, because that's what she used to literally cover Constantinople. Below her is usually whomever needs protecting, usually children or warriors. The icon was also on the throne of the Dormation Cathedral of the Lavra Complex, now no longer in the Orthodox uh, Orthodox Christianity control because they fucked up when they started that war. Anywho, uh, the Feast of the Pokrove, so the word Sviato means feast, began, uh, then began to be celebrated throughout the kingdom, and various rulers built churches dedicated to her. Yaroslav the Wise used it as a way to protect his land by the Mother of God. Now, when he defeated the Pechenegs in 1036, he built another church of the Assumption of the Golden Gates and Cave, purely out of gratitude. Mstislav also built a church to Mother Mary's image when he defeated the Caesarians. Voldemir Monomach thanked God and the Most Holy Virgin of, for his defeat of the Polovtsi. Later on, King Danilo prayed before the icon in home, or Helm, to thank her for his successful campaign against the Czechs. It is also the Halich intercession uh, icon that is the oldest example of this type of icon in Ukraine at the time. What's interesting is this icon is that the Virgin Mary is seated upon the throne, baby Jesus is on her chest, and two angels hold a veil over her. It was around this time that the cult of the Pokrove really got off the ground, as King Danilo venerated the icon and the mother of Mary. And his son, King Lev, even offered up the village of Pokrovska to the home cathedral in the 1270s. Pretty soon, there were churches dedicated to Pokrova throughout western Ukraine. The Church of the Intercession of the Virgin in Lutsk, for example, dates back to the 15th century, as do the castle churches in Vinitsia and in Kaminets Podilsky. The same can be said in the cave region. The Church of the Tits and the Assumption Cathedral in the Lavra Caves were important, obviously. But St. Sophia's Cathedral also recorded the Virgin's relics in the beginning of the 15th century, including a specter, not sure what she used with that for, but you know, whatever, along with her sandals. Now, in the Podil area of Cave, the Church of the Virgin Mary became the center of cultural and political life. Now, this all happened in concurrence with the Mongol invasion of Ukrainian lands in the early 1200s. And there is reason to suggest that the Mongol invasion actually allowed the cult of the Pokrova to develop further. People needed to feel that a higher power is protecting them. 
and the Virgin Mother was an ideal image. One has to remember that the post-Mongol period throughout much of Ukraine, apart from the West, was basically a shit show. There was a weakening of the prince, princely class, but also the beginning of, of the um, Magdeburg Law, which was like a sort of self-autonomy of the village, which increased the need to defend the region from the Golden Horde and then the Crimean Khanate. These sort of middle-class people would later become the first formations of the Ukrainian Cossacks. Ukrainian culture is fascinating, isn't it? The food, the music, the dance, the food, the clothing, the art. Did I mention the food? And especially the history. It's something that doesn't get the attention it deserves. Something else that doesn't get enough attention in our culture is the history of the Eastern Front of the Second World War. A war fought largely on Ukrainian soil. A war that swallowed up tens of millions of people in many countries. Battles that dwarfed D-Day and the Battle of the Bulge. A war that redrew the world's borders. And a war that echoes in Ukraine right now. I'm Scott Bray, author, honorary Ukrainian, and podcaster of Beyond Barbarossa, first English-language podcast in the world that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. Every episode, I go deep into the events as they unfolded eight decades ago. Regularly, guests join to share their expert knowledge and reflections on the war. So, if you're interested in learning more about history, won't you join me for this in-depth tour of the biggest part of the war that shaped the world we inhabit today? You can find Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting platform. And, since you're listening to Wandering the Edge, I know you can spell Barbarossa. So, Mother Mary became an important cultural figurehead. And she was also venerated as affirmation of one's own state identity, as the image of Mother Mary became a symbol of the Rus nobility, and then Ukrainian Christian statehood. So in this, it's like a weird irony that this feast day would even come to Ukraine, but it did. While the original miracle showed her protection against the, against the Rus pagans, thereby showing the power of the true faith, then it, came, then it came to Kiev and took all of the Rus people under her protection also. It was the Cossacks who then used that image for their own state development, however. The cult of the Pokrovish slowed down somewhat in the 16th century, but spread again with the development of the Cossacks. Now, this spread was due to many things. A coalition of the Crimean Khanate with the steps alongside the formation and descent of the Cossacks in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It was this revival of old cults that led the Cossacks to the Pokrove, an icon that was probably natural, as it was one that dealt with protection during a time of war. The spread of the cult of Archangel Michael was another one, mainly as he is the patron saint of warriors. Now, in the Cossack era, there were three revered religious holidays, Easter, the Epiphany, and the Intercession. Christmas, as much as we celebrate the birth of Christ, it really wasn't that highly regarded back in the day. It was mostly a celebration of old pagan traditions of the new year for many Cossacks and many Ukrainians. No one really knows when the importance of this feast day occurred, but the Cossacks took it and sort of ran with it. Their central church on the Zaporizhian siege, which was like their home base, was named after the Pokrove. Under the church's main gate, the Cossacks came together to have their meetings and their decisions were made, 
it might not be all that surprising, as they all hoped and prayed that the Mother of God would protect them from attackers with her sacred veil. The actual church was one of three religious places that the Cossacks donated their treasures to. One was the Church of the Holy Savior in Mezhihivsk. Another was the Terech Temirovsky Monastery. I have no idea where that is, actually. And the third was the Pokrova Church on the Siege. The Cossacks held elections for their new leaders, including the Hetman on this feast day. Every unit of the siege host was to have an icon with them, and that protective image was depicted on their banners whenever the Cossacks marched into war. Before each campaign, they would kneel and pray before her, while at the end of their campaigns, they would pray to her again. With this importance came a change to the actual icon. Now, it included Cossacks, or their leaders, under the protection of her veil, and the inscriptions were added of, I will cover my people, or we pray, cover us with your holy veil and deliver us from evil. Now, these little changes in the actual icon depicting the mother of Mary, uh, the mother of God was part of a wider artistic trend. The beginning and blooming of the Cossack or Ukrainian Baroque. Icons alongside churches became instrumental in this new uh, artistic trend with the Pokrovit icon now covering Ukrainian church higher-ups or hierarchs as they are called, Hetman's chieftains and more uh, prominent Cossacks. The height of this artistic trend was during the hetmanship of Ivan Mazepa in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. Ukrainian or Cossack Baroque was a bit more distinct than the Western style with more moderate ornamentation, ornamentation and simpler forms. Most of the churches in Kiev today, or at least the most famous ones, are examples of this. The exterior of St. Sophia's Cathedral, St. Michael's Golden Dome Monastery, the Holy Trinity Church, which serves as the main gates of the whole of the Kiev Pachetska Lavra complex, along with the famous St. Andrew's Church that overlooks Podil itself. One of the other offshoots of the popularization of the Pokrove cult during the Cossack era was the increase in the study of the continuality of the cultural and political process, from the Kievan princes to the Cossacks' Ukraine. Examples include Herasim uh, Smotritsky, director of the Ostrok Academy, Zaharia Kopistensky, who researched the relationship between Western and Eastern Christian religions, and Job Poboretsky, who was the Metropolitan of Kiev, Halich, and all of Rus. Now, we, before we move on to the evolution of this feast day, I want to add here that much like other Ukrainian history or cultural, culturally important activities, the Russians tried to steal it all. In the 18th century, so around the time that Mazeppa said a big fat fuck you to Peter the Great and sided with Sweden during the Great Northern War, Russia decided to associate the formation of the cult to, of the intercession of the Virgin Mary with the shithead known as Andrei Dolgobuts, Dolholruki, the 12th century prince who basically created Moscow. It was around the 18th century that the new Russian political founding myth began to be spread, and it was argued that Andriy founded the Church of the Intercession along the Nedel River near Vladimir. And so the Russian idea that it was he who began the tradition of this feast day started. And obviously, why would the Russians think independently? Anyway, why does this feast day fall on October 14th? Well, there's obviously the idea, idea that it was around this time that the original miracle occurred in Constantinople. 
But for Ukrainians, it was also a traditional time that began the wedding season. There's an old saying in Ukraine, quote, the canopy covers the grass with leaves, the ground with snow, the water with ice, and the girls with the wedding crown, end quote. And so after the Feast of the Pokrove, until about mid-November, it was time for mass marriages. The feast day also superimposed itself on the old pagan festivals that would believe that sort of believe that Mother Nature was beginning her uh, season of sleep and winter would begin its ownership of the land. As indicated in episode 11, which was all about marriages, the Ukrainian wedding had a special period of time beforehand where the young couple would officially be matchmade. Now, this period of matchmaking and preparations was done before the Pokrove. The feast day was also known to be the official day when the harvest was to be brought in and the agricultural work cycle was to be completed. After this, there was, no more time, there was more time for weddings. Naturally, there was still more daylight out, so having a party into the late night was still possible. Now, during the actual marriage ceremony, the veil became an important aspect of the female's role. As she prayed, prayed to the Virgin Mary, a veil was covered over her head to ask for the protection of the Virgin Mary. Obviously, during the actual day of the Pokrove, there were various superstitions that needed to be looked for. A low wind that blew from the south would mean that the winter would be warm. If it blew from the north, it would be cold. If it blew from the west, it would be snowy. But if the wind changed directions during the day, it would be an unstable season. If the cherry trees still had their leaves on, the winter would be warm. And if there wasn't snow on that day, or uh, nor would there be in November. It was all of this that October 14th was the day that Ukrainians celebrated Sviatopokrove. And yes, it's also a feast day in the actual church calendar. Now, October 14th was cemented as a religious feast day. But then during the Second World War, it became an official founding day. The Ukrainian insurgents' official date of formation was set as October 14, 1942, during the 1974, uh, 1947 meeting of the main Ukrainian Liberation Council. Why did they choose October 14, 1942? I honestly don't know. I'm 100% sure it had to do with the feast day since it's all about, you know, protection. So as I mentioned in earlier episodes, the history of the Ukrainian insurgent army is kind of complicated. But its origins really aren't. It all happened during the chaotic years of the Second World War, after Germany invaded the Soviet Union. Now, before the war, Ukrainians created the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists in 1929 to fight for Ukrainian independence, but by any and all means, even illegal ones. And as early as October 1941, at the first OUN conference, the OUN formulated its future strategy of creating an underground armed structure. However, the Germans who were lukewarm with Ukrainian armed units within the wider German armed forces structures sort of said, mm, fuck that, once Ukrainian nationalists declared independence in June 1941. After this, Ukrainian nationalists were officially to be on the um, capture, interrogate, and kill list for them. Anywho, in April 1942, the OUN had a second conference which indicated that a future military force needs to be created against the Soviets. Now, around the same time as this, there was another UPA that was created in the Polizia area of northwestern Ukraine under the command of Taras Bulba Borovets. Now, the history of Taras Bulba Borovets is also complicated, as the history of anything in Ukraine during the Second World War. But Borovets in 1942 basically fought a war against the Germans in this little region of Ukraine. 
He began to negotiate with both the Soviets and the Germans, but it really came to nothing. In early 1943, he began negotiations with the Oun, a Bandera faction, to unite all nationalist movements. Anyway, as good Ukrainians, they didn't agree on anything. And the Oun group began calling their armed forces the UPA, while Borovets changed his name to the Ukrainian National Revolutionary Army. After this, the two sides sort of escalated into a small civil war until the Oun was in charge of the insurgents. The same time also included killing Poles of the region, but also having counterattacks against Ukrainians from the Germans and the Poles. And so having a Ukrainian self-defense unit in one's, po- in one's village was also a popular idea. These self-defense units were also influenced by the Oun, and later a lot of these participants actually joined the UPA. Now, the UPA chose October 14th as its official day of creation because it entrusted the Holy Mother of God to protect it. But what happened after the UPA members were forced to leave Ukrainian territory in 1947 and emigrate throughout the world was that the Sviatopokrova began to be celebrated every year among the diaspora as a reminder of who and what the UPA fought for. And so the religious feast day turned in the diaspora while secretly also was also being uh, celebrated in Ukraine, since, you know, the Soviets didn't like unofficial religion. After independence in 1991, Ukrainians in Ukraine also celebrated the feast day as a way of remembering past warriors. But it was more centered around the religious aspect for those who didn't remember the UPA. But all that changed in 2014 when Russia invaded Ukraine by first occupying the Krim and then partially the Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast. Because they're assholes. It was that year that Defenders Day in Ukraine would be celebrated on October 14th and not on February 23rd. Now, the February 23rd holiday was the one that was celebrated during the Soviet Union, which was sort of a commemoration of the Soviet Army and Navy that unofficially began in 1919, but then stopped being a state holiday in 1991 in Ukraine. It's still a state holiday in shitty Russia, though. And so when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014... President Poroshenko issued decree number 806-2014, which said, quote, In order to honor the courage and heroism of the defenders of the independence and territorial integrity of Ukraine, military traditions, and the success of the Ukrainian people, promoting the further strengthening of the patriotic spirit in society, unquote. And so Defenders Day was now officially to be celebrated on October 14th. And so every year, since 2014, Ukrainian soldiers take oaths of allegiance to Ukraine in Central Cave, usually with a portrait of Simon Petlura or other prominent military figures in Ukrainian history looking on. This holiday also includes both male and female soldiers in their struggle for Ukrainian independence. And with this latest full-blown invasion of Ukraine, this feast day has been even more pronounced, as the cost of true independence for Ukraine is clearly clearly being seen. And Sviatopokrovin now, in Ukraine, is one of the top big celebrations of the year, with marches, parades, concerts, and festivals, all dedicated to the memory of those who put their lives down for Ukraine. And this year, in 2023, it will move once again, seeing as the Ukrainian Orthodox and Greek Catholic churches have officially began to move their calendars over to the Gregorian calendar. And so both the Feast of the Protection of Our Most Holy uh, Most Holy Lady Theotokos and Ever-Virgin Mary and Defender's Day 
in Ukraine will be celebrated on October 1st. And now, because Russia has decided to invade Ukraine, we need help. Please donate to any humanitarian aid relief you can. I've also posted on my website some suggestions. Please remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Wander Edge Ukraine. Check out our website, wanderingtheedge.net, for source information and other interesting extras. And if you're listening to me on Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict, please rate and review and leave a comment about anything, even any weird historical tidbit you have about your culture or peoples. And if you're listening on all the other streaming sites, thank you very much. And as always, happy wanderings, my friends, and Slava Ukraini, Ihroim Slava. Mm-hmm.